is the challenge with regenerative agronomy is that you're looking at more holistically at the phosphorus pools in the soil so it's not just that estimated available bucket that the Colwell pea or the Olsen pea or any the Bray peas try to estimate. We've got organic pea in biomass of the cover crop above ground and below ground. The Biological Farming Roundtable podcast helps farmers explore innovative, low input, regenerative and profitable farming systems. The Biological Farming Roundtable is sponsored by Nutrisoil, an award-winning biological liquid fertiliser made from a big worm farm. Nutrisoil's purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food. Today's Biological Farming Roundtable podcast is a topic top of mind for many farmers across the country. I'm with agroecologist David Hardwick from Soilland Food and soil health mentor Luke Harrington from Regen Farming. And our topic today is phosphorus. We discuss the options available to our farmers who are facing a future with increasing phosphorus prices, how to access the amount of phosphorus you might have in reserve within your soil, and the keys to unlocking the potential which is under your feet. If you are looking for a way to protect your farming future from the uncertainty of unpredictable input prices, then this podcast is for you. Hello everybody, it's Nicola here from NutriSoil. Today I have David Hardwick, agroecologist from Soilland Food, and Luke Harrington from Regen Farming with me. And we are going to talk about what to do when the price of pea goes through the roof. So, uh, Luke, what's happening? Why is phosphorus increasing in price? Nicola, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. There's several reasons. I think obviously COVID is a bit of an issue. There's some political issues happening around the world that have made it a bit difficult. And there's also the energy costs are quite high at the moment. So I think that's probably the three main reasons why most fertilisers are rising in price. It's a bit of a perfect storm, isn't it, really? Everything's coming together at once. Yeah. What are the expected price increases? So the farmers that I've been talking to, they've been asked to lock in around that $1,400, $1,450 mark out of Melbourne, out of Geelong, uh, for your MAPs and DAPs. And single soup is about 500 at the moment, to the best of my knowledge, plus your G out of Geelong. So they're the current prices and they're expecting those to go higher, supply and demand, all those sorts of things, uh, when cropping season turns up next year. Are we expecting this to be a one-year spike like 2008 or what, what are we forecasting it's hard, here? Hard to know, isn't it? But when you, I've read some business analysts that are talking about China having logistical problems for more than one year and, you know, you've got freight problems and not enough pallets and shipping containers and all the rest of it and trucks and truck drivers and it all adds up. But, you know, they're talking yeah. about maybe it'll be a couple of years that we're going to have supply chain issues on everything from quad bikes to fertiliser for a couple of years anyway. Yeah. And I think too we need to remember that we're, we're phosphorus is a finite resource. It's We've gotten to a certain point where I think we're well over our halfway mark of using our known phosphorus reserves. So there's only one place for the price to go when you hit the halfway mark. So. The universe is giving us some good early signs. Uh, so what's step number one when we find ourselves in this situation? What do we do? Go to Mars and try and mine it there. <laughs> Elon Musk will help. Yeah, basically we've got to take a more holistic approach, I guess, to, to managing yep. phosphorus. We can't just go on the business as usual, put it out every year because I can get it at a reasonable price and 
that's what worked in the past. We've got to fine-tune things, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose step one is do I need phosphorus? Like do I have good reserves in my soil? Do a really good soil test. Um, the one I do, I, I get EAL to do one and I generally do a total test. So that tells us what's totally there plus also what's plant available. So David could probably fill us in a lot more on that, but that's the first step I'd be doing is do I need it? Yeah, so I guess it's sort of, you know, that principle number one of regenerative agronomy is make the most of what you've already got. So have you got phosphorus in your soil type? Most soil types have some phosphorus, but do some have more than others. And then am I making the most of it by getting it to cycle as effectively as possible, which obviously you need to work with your biological systems. But if you don't measure that reserve or that total phosphorus, you don't know what you've got. And if you're not focusing on soil health and root activity and plant diversity, then you're not maximising the cycling of that phosphorus. So I guess as Luke's pointed out, get a test and not just a standard agronomic test, but get the totals as well would be that first key decision. So if I come across my test and I've, I've got my totals done, I've got ample P, but what I don't have is available P and I've got to get my crop in in April, what should I be doing right now? Well, personally, I think right at this point in time, we've, we're having a wet summer. I think we could put in a quickly a, a quick summer cover crop um, with things that are going to cycle pea and probably mycorrhizal dominant. Um, and then you've got some legumes and specific plants like buckwheat will actually help release phosphorus for the following crop. That would be something that I would be looking at. We've got the moisture this year, so why not uh, use that? Make and, the and, most of it, yeah. try and drive that cycling of the phosphorus. Yeah, so, you, you know, you're thinking, and if you're in grazing, well, it's, it's an ongoing thing where you're trying to improve that grazing management, plant diversity and root system function to drive the cycling of my phosphorus and deepen that topsoil so I'm accessing more of the phosphorus that's in there inherently. Um, but we're pretty much trying to work with those biological systems and optimise what I call the nutrient cycling capacity of your paddock, basically. Yeah, plant diversity is at the heart of it. So, yeah, when you're in cropping, thinking about next, next uh, winter crop or when grazing or wherever you are, it's the same principle. Um, but know your totals um, and then get that nutrient cycling capacity going as best you can, which is building soil health and making sure you're fixing your soil constraints, um, whether they be compaction or aluminium or whatever they are, so that you optimise your root systems and your plant diversity. So if we were going to use this cover crop to do that, how much pea would we expect might become available from using those um, particular types of plants like scavenge pea? What can we rise our potential phosphorus availability to? I don't need numbers, but Yeah, you know. look, it's a tricky one because biological function, the soil, one, the soil test, the available phosphorus on a soil test doesn't capture all the phosphorus that is actually available. Because for example, if you've got mycorrhizal fungi cycling phosphorus, they cycle it directly from unavailable minerals straight to the plant and you can't measure that on a standard soil test. So it's, it is, and this is the tricky part of 21st century regenerative agronomy is that the standard soil test, it gives you a rule of thumb, but it doesn't give you the full picture. And probably, you know, that's the challenge we have with 21st century agronomy is more actively able to measure the biological cycling. But yeah, you know, the expectation is we can lift that available pool of nutrients or phosphorus in this case 
to cycle for the next plant. So if you're using Colwell P, for example, as your available P, you know, are you seeing that lift a little bit? But you may have a situation where at the same Colwell P or only a little bit of a change, you're getting more phosphorus cycling, but you're not able to measure it as easily as what you'd like, I guess. So Dave, with yeah. the Colwell P, yeah. if I look at my soil test and I've got 60 Colwell P, yeah. Do I need to add phosphorus there or, or how many years of phosphorus, available phosphorus is that for, let's say, an average wheat crop? Yeah, well, I guess if you, well, if we're talking obviously different rainfall areas, you can have a different target. But let's yeah. just say in central western New South Wales, for example, you, you're aiming for about a 30 to 35 Colwell P. Yeah. So obviously for that season, you know you've got adequate or more than adequate available P. Yeah. So then the next question is, have I got phosphorus cycling out of my total reserve? Um, on an ongoing basis or is that luxury P level, if you like, from previous fertiliser history? Yeah. Um, and then I guess the key thing to do is start to monitor it more regularly. So you could just do a Colwell P test on its own for, you know, not too much money, maybe 20 bucks, and get a little bit more targeted so you learn on that soil type, on that paddock, yeah. what's actually going on yeah. before and after a cover crop, for example, because it's not a lot of money to spend 30 or 40 bucks for a Colwell P test. And obviously the phosphorus buffer index or how well phosphorus ties up in the mineral fraction, but it really doesn't matter whether you're on high alkaline soil, a high tie up soil or a sandy soil. The heart of the matter is we need organic matter, soil carbon and biological function to drive phosphorus yeah. cycling as well as having some there. So what are our best tactics, I guess, in managing the biomass of that cover crop to optimise the P? And, and when do we do that Colwell test so that we can see where we're at and, and what type of amendments we might need once we've done that cover crop? Well, I guess the Colwell P, you know, you want to do it before you make your fertiliser decision so you're ready to go on your... If you do need to, use a fertiliser and we can, I guess, get to those alternative fertilisers in a minute. But I guess you're managing two parts of the biomass, the above ground trash or, or above ground biomass and the root volume. So usually when we talk about terminating and cover crop biomass management, it's usually the tops that we all focus on. But with phosphorus, you know, it's in that organic material. And so it will just slowly release through the season. But um, so really the termination time is not as critical as it might be, for example, for nitrogen. But once the plants switch to reproduction, you know, there's less uptake of nutrients at that point anyway. So you're kind of at the business end of things. So at that point, your determination decision can often be around nitrogen more than um, or weed control or whatever it is or preparing the ground more yep. than the nutrients. Yeah. Yep. Knowing, yeah, knowing your own equipment, what your equipment can get through and all those sorts of things come into play there. So personally, I think if you can get in there and graze it, make some... If you've got some livestock, graze it and then um, then worry about terminating it. Get the most out of it while, while it's there. So. Yeah. And what I think we're alluding to is that if we do this Colwell P, that's actually measuring the available P still, but all of that root system and biomass under the ground is actually going to have some organic P that's going to be slow release for you. So you've got to take that into consideration this year yeah. in that. Um, yeah, and this, this is the challenge with regenerative agronomy is that you're looking at more holistically at the phosphorus pools in the soil. So it's not just that 
estimated available bucket that the Colwell pea or the Olsen pea or the, the Bray peas try to estimate. We've got organic pea in the biomass of the cover crop above ground and below ground. And that's where things like the Haney test are trying to, what they're trying to do, the Haney test tries to estimate some of that phosphorus potential out of your organic matter and that's really what it, one of the key purposes of the Haney test. Now people debate the Haney test and um, you know it's a bit of an early technology in Australia but that's the reason you know that Dr Rick Haney developed that test or well, one of the things was to try and estimate a little bit more accurately that biological dimension to the phosphorus. Um, so hence people use it like you know Gay Brown and more farmers in Australia are using the Haney test to just to supplement that decision making and maybe the Haney test is something worth trialling along with your Colwell P just again so you're building up an understanding of that paddock system and there's not a lot of R&D being done whether it's by the, the levy funded organisations or across Australia or so unfortunately you know you and your agronomists are getting, got to get in there and do a bit of the R&D. So maybe that's another tactic to do is bring in the Haney test um, as part of what you're doing. Yeah, David, we've been doing a Reboot Your Soil course with you as part of the NutriSoil Hub members and Luke's been involved in that too. And going through the soil tests, what we're finding at the nutrient management decision is if your soil health uh, has increased, um, like your organic matter is there, it's got this buffering system for you where at the end of the day, it's good to understand the soil test but it's other strategies that you're using other than nutrient amendments. In cropping, is this something that we're moving into? Oh, for sure, because uh, you can have all the fertility you like, but if it isn't cycling, then we may as well go and live on Mars. So that's what soil health does. It optimises root zone and roots, of course, dribble, and the dribble is what drives nutrient cycling because it gets all the life in the soil hormonal and then they all have the party as Dr Chandra Iyer says and when you have a party there's usually a lot of vomiting and dribbling and all the rest of it so yeah you, it drives the show if you like those plant roots so that's our goal really isn't it yeah. yep Luke tell us about these alternative phosphorus um, sources that we do have at the moment yeah so obviously we've got soft rock phosphate that's um that's mined up in upper Queensland and then you've got guano we can get our hands on guano at the moment uh, that comes out of Indonesia um, and then they're not just phosphorus as well they've got silicon and calcium and and um, some other goodies in them as well zinc and a few other things and uh, depending on which ones you get and for like cost effective wise like I can get uh, soft rock phosphate down into sort of lower New South Wales for about $390 a tonne. So it's per unit of P, it's probably fairly cost effective. Mm. But the thing is, once again, we've got to have that microbial system working to get the best out of that. So, so in a soil with really low carbon and poor structure and, you know, you're trying to rehabilitate and you might be early days transitioning a paddock over to a more biological soil health-based approach. But if it is really compromised, then you know, be careful with the rock phosphate only because it, you don't have that sort of hit of red cordial soluble pea from a, a MAP or a DAP or a super or a triple super even to kind of at least prime the soil. 
because it's not ready yet, if you like. Yeah, but even those soluble fertilisers, they work a lot better in a biologically functioning soil. They're more efficiently used. But yeah, so that's the risk. You've got to do that yeah. holistic agronomy and see where it's a fit. Yeah, and, and I generally would probably, that would be something that would look in an, into a second or third year in a program because I know that that system started to work. So, or if we put it out, we would put out a little bit of single super or DAP or something like that to just to get the system kicking along. So you could do a hybrid approach. Yeah. So you mix a bit of your soluble with a bit of your slow release mineral based yeah. phosphorus and yeah, and the mix could be 30-70 or 50-50 or 70-30, depending on the paddock status biologically is the big thing, as well as sort of your level of estimated available pea and what's in the total bucket. You can see, Nicola, that it's a little bit more complex than just the available and unavailable thinking that probably we've had in 20th century agronomy, those two buckets, what's available, what's unavailable, and I just focus on my available bucket, which we have to get a bit more holistic and look at a wider range of factors. But if we don't, if the price of phosphorus is hanging around and, and the new world is that everything's more expensive, then we're gonna to have to get sharper in our thinking, so. Is phosphorus available in a foliar fertilizer and is it effective? Well, yeah, it's definitely available in a, in a foliar application. There's almost every company, every ag company has a form of a foliar fertilizer. You can get um, foliar applied liquid, liquid guano, um, you've got Nutritech Solutions, have got their NPK trace elements, TM Folia has got phosphorus in it. So, But they're probably, they're a supplementary thing. I wouldn't want to be just relying on that. I, we need, still need that, that phosphorus cycling through the soil, but they're very effective at propping plants up through through the growing season if you need to fix a... Um, yeah, fix a deficiency. Yeah. In the short term. Yeah. yeah, they can help you out. Yeah, and you can also make your own, make a bioferment based product with yeah. a bit of pea in it. Yeah, I've got one going at the moment at home actually with um, micronized guano. Yeah, so it's bubbling away. We'll see how that works out. These foliar fertilizers. When I look at the analysis, it's it's a lot lower than something that you know even your soft rock phosphate. How can we make these nutrient decisions, management decisions, with these differences in analysis? What's the conversion rate? Well, when you use a foliar, it's taken directly into the plant and the plant doesn't have to utilise a lot of energy to, uh, to go out and source that food source. Uh, so they're much more effective that way. Um, Graham Sait says seven to ten times more effective through the, through the leaf than through the root system. Uh, and I've heard plenty of other people say the same thing. So you don't need as much, uh, but once again, it is just a supplement to, to what's coming through the plant and through the, through the biological system. I mean, if you feed them foliarly through foliar spraying for their whole plant nutrition, for the plant nutrition's demand for the whole cycle of the plant, you'd be out there spraying very regularly. So, yeah. you know, it's really just where you're identifying where you've got potential risk at a critical time. Yeah. Yeah, so we're looking at an approach of putting all of this together. Relying on just one is just not going to get us through. Yep. So That's what? Correct. Where will biologicals come into this? How are we going to increase the biological function of our soil with these biostimulants? So I wouldn't put out a seed without a biostimulant on it personally. I, I, that's probably one of the first things. 
Um, and by getting that biological function going and having your mycorrhizal working and, and all those sorts of things, it just makes the whole system work. And in Australia, we've got some pretty low phosphorus country, but the plants don't show a, a limiting factor of uh, limiting, limited phosphorus. So why is that? And it's just simply because they've worked out a way to get what they need through the biological system. So there's that that partnership between soil, soil microbes and plant roots that's evolved for 400 million years. So, you know, to optimise the cycling of nutrients. If they hadn't, then no one would have survived a few uh, generations because that's evolution. So yeah. they're optimising that nutritional status. So you, you have got that efficiency. So I guess we're trying to prime that biological functioning and sometimes just your paddock's really very poor health and has been farmed hard and has no structure and air and water getting into it. So the, the stimulants just try and help trigger that change and get yeah. those that rhizosphere to function more effectively. And I think, you know, you've got your stimulants like the Nutrisoil or some of the other products, the TM Ags and, and those kind of things, Humates, and then you've got your actual inoculums, so things like mycorrhizal fungi. Um, there's also some phosphorus solubilizing bacteria that are out there. So, and we know the other big elephant in the room, of course, is plant diversity and having that diversity of root systems and exudation and dribble under the ground seems to trigger this, what they call multifunctionality. So the whole whole party just goes, hey, hey, why? You bring in a few yeah. extra weirdos into the party and the whole thing gets really crazy. So, yeah, the level of the music just gets ramped up. Yeah. yeah. So when I tend to coat the seed, I'll generally use something like Nutrisoil and I'll quite often in the first couple of years in a program is I'll put um, mycorrhizal fungi on and those bacteria just to get the system going. And if we look after our soils properly, you only have to do those for a few years and, and get that back into the system. And then you can sort of go away from that a bit. But I always put a biological on to just help that seed along when you're because the difference in root structure and is just amazing it just surprises me every time i dig in the ground where we've done it with and without and the difference in in the development of roots and things like that which is what we're really chasing in the environment that we're in um just amazes me every time yeah, so I was going to add on, you know, and if you're deepening that active root zone, you're actually accessing more phosphorus, even though your coal well phosphorus on your soil test might be 20 or 15 or 30 or whatever it is. But if I've just increased that feeder root zone of the roots by five centimetres from 10 to 15, I've just got an extra 50% more phosphorus without adding any in because I've now got a, a bigger feeding zone. So as long as that soil type's the same down to there, this inherent phosphorus has just gone up. What about putting the biologicals with the folulars? Is that making any difference? Absolutely. I um, When we put out TM foliar, I always put it out with Nutrisoil where possible and the difference is considerable. Uh, I, that's when I get phone calls from growers and they go, that's amazing. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? So uh, using them on their own, they're, they're great, but when you put them together, they just seem to work so much better. I think the, the biological helps the plant take in the minerals better. Yeah, and this is what you're doing with the biofits too, David. Yeah, so if we think about like this, what we're trying to do is bring biology back to the paddock. 
as much as we can. And because we know the 21st century view of a crop soil system, if we leave the 1950s agronomy thinking behind, is that the plants and the soils are in this rich microbial community, and I call it the paddock microbiome. So we're trying to re bring back that microbiome. So they've all evolved together, just like us. We're full of bacteria, you know, inside us and all over us. And it's the same when you're looking out on a paddock. So really trying to bring that back and that's where you get that synergy and the and the whole system switches on but it is a big challenge um, but it's not just the soil biology it's over the leaf surface of the plants etc so it's this amazing community which is what we call the microbiome now obviously the term's being used so we're just the more we can work with that biological dimension to the crop soil system the more a success we're going to have i think in the in, re, in building efficient modern cropping and pasture systems yeah but some of the products it's still early days you know are they the right fit in that situation because it's a bit of a new area in a way although it's been around for a few decades but you know we're we're learning now what works what combinations work and yeah. Um, yeah, it's exciting times in agronomy. I'm glad I'm nearly retired or get too busy. <laughs> Not yet, David. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's really important to remember like, we were talking about how we need to bring that microbiome. Mother Nature's been doing R&D for 4.3 billion years and here we are. We've done it for a, a few hundred and we think we're smarter than she is. And, and I just think she's starting to say, well, you're not quite as intelligent as you think you are, guys. Yeah. Have a bit of a rethink. Yeah, and look, that's... This conversation, we've really based it around soils that have been in, in traditional agronomy and have these low soil carbons and soil health, but we can't, we can't limit ourselves there. We know that there's people out there who have moved past this. There's not many <laughs> who are putting it all together and who are actually at a place where they can use grazing management, uh, minimal chemical use and just biologicals in their cropping system that's profitable for them so you know the future we're here now and I think that what I said earlier on the universe is giving us another little nudge to say keep going keep going there is something that that is achievable if you can find that um that system that puts it all together. Um, I guess you've highlighted something important too, and that is that economic sweet spot, Nicola. Mm. Like, you know, are our yield goals that everyone's expecting to get nowadays through high input use, is that really the optimum yield? And by optimum yield, I mean not just the one that's the most profitable, but also most profitable over the long term so that it can go through the ups and downs of the good years like this year, although this year might be getting too good. Um, and the really tight years, low rainfall. So, you know, it's that sweet spot for long-term optimum profit, and that's very different than your short-term fast agronomy just to get maximum yield and cash this year. They're two different things. So that sweet spot might be a slightly lower maximum potential yield, but it's the, it's the yield that you'll be getting year in and year out, especially in the lower rainfall years, the tighter years. So you know, I think we've all got to rethink, you know, what is that optimum yield? Because that, that's yeah. the one that long-term will make you happy. Yeah. It's so complex because of so many different soil types. I mean, working with you with this reboot, our yeah. soil, the different soil types we're coming across and the different management strategies that you're going to have to employ because it's just not profitable um, in some systems to work a certain way. So that sweet spot and that benchmark is different for everybody. Yeah, so yeah. it's... 
it's the trickiest subject, isn't it? So yeah. do we stand back and do nothing and just get just get what Mother Nature gives us? Or how much do we tweak it? It's the it's the million dollar question. Yeah, and I think just taking that holistic approach as we've kind of talked about here, you know, just assess your overall situation, not just your available but your totals and really try to assess that nutrient cycling capacity of your paddock. And we're now starting to get new tools like soil DNA testing and things that are going to help us fine-tune that. You know, what is our phosphorus cycle? How optimal is it? Um, the long fallow disorder research from, you know, a couple of years ago now really showed the importance of mycorrhizal fungi in northern cropping systems in, in the East Coast, so Dubbo, North and things. So we're starting to get the tools that can help us really fine-tune our decisions. But... Yeah, it, it is. You've just got to get in there and take a holistic approach. Mm. Yeah. With the challenging soils, so say if you've got an alkaline soil or you've got a soil that has a really high phosphorus buffering index, so it's just going to suck that pea up straight away and not give it to the plant, uh, do these alternative sources, guano and soft rock phosphate, work in these scenarios? Yes. The, if, you've got, if they're biologically working they'll work but whereas soft rock phosphate on an alkaline soil generally if, if there's no biological activity it's probably not as effective guano my understanding is it can be because it's put right at the root zone and if the plant is working and doing its thing properly and it puts out the right exudate it will be able to get that phosphorus because um, it will create its own acid so that should work in that environment but yeah soft rock phosphate probably not so much so the key seems to be working with that seed environment rather than trying to address the whole soil. Sure, the rhizosphere. But I, yeah. I think the long fallow disorder is a really good example because, you know, it's often was on, if not always, on alkaline high pH soils. And the clear lesson was that you need mycorrhizal fungi to supply your phosphorus to your plants in those environments. And so the long bare fallow, you lost that population and hence you had phosphorus problems. So different communities on the planet, soil communities have evolved to cycle phosphorus depending on the ambient environment. So acid soils, neutral or high pH, high clay soils. There's different pathways of phosphorus cycling and different plants can trigger change with their roots. So there's kind of more than one way that phosphorus is done, if you like. But the principle is you give enough carbon, you have enough diversity and you work with, you optimize your nutrient cycling capacity. It's the same principle no matter, but just the tactics will be different. Luke, what about intercropping and using companion plants to help us get this nutrient cycling happening? Is there any work on that out there happening? Yeah, um, Joel Williams has done quite a bit of work on that. So you could quite possibly plant a phosphorus cycling plant and nitrogen cycling plant with your crop. And, and if you've got the biomes all set up and the, um, the quorum sensing kicks into gear and they all start sharing things, that, that works really well. But let's say you put buckwheat, you sowed buckwheat with your, uh, with your cereal crop, it's actually a, a warmer season crop and it'll frost out during the year so you don't even have to terminate that but it will grow and hopefully release a bit of phosphorus so your cereal crop can use that. So this is the big question, isn't it? Like we know that when say a plant accumulates phosphorus for you and then when it's material organic matter breaks down when it dies you're going to get a release of that phosphorus for the following crop or for the pastures after that but 
the next big question is how much is in real-time sharing, which we suspect is can be quite a lot in a really high-functioning microbiome, if we're going to keep using that term. But we were still kind of trying to tease out how much of that. And I remember years ago reading an Australian farm journal, about probably 20 years ago, and they had a photo, a scanning electron microscope photo of a, of a van fungi, I think it was, shifting amino acids to a plant root in real time so you know you obviously do get some transfer of nutrients in real time whereas traditionally you think oh i've got to wait for that cover crop to break down and release the phosphorus or the nitrogen but we now know that there's real time sharing so to speak um everyone's on tinder all the time there in the soil so yeah i mean this this is the exciting area of agronomy is when we fire this microbiome right up and get the quorums on and all the rest of it how much can we actually just get that real-time sharing of nutrients. It's mm. prob- prob- the answer is probably a fair bit, yeah. So how do we know this year? So say we're forced into some type of change this year and we're starting to put these different things together. We're using an alternative source maybe with some of our traditional. We're using a biological maybe with some follicular. Uh, we might be using bioferments. All new things are going to start coming out this year that people are, are going to be choosing. How can we monitor that it's working? Like how, how are we going to know halfway through our crop that we've done the right thing. Tissue testing is probably the uh, the easiest way. And um, visual symptoms yeah. as well. So obviously, you know, how the let, the, yeah. let the plant tell us what's going on. Yeah. So you could have all the phosphorus in the, in the world in the soil and have nothing in your plant uh, if your biological system's not working. I think the key keeps coming back to we've got to have biological function. We've got to have that's got to be happening. So when are our key times to tissue test and how many well, should we, we do? If we start with the soil test, obviously we're using our traditional available soil tests, but we've done a totals before that to know what our potential supplies. But once the crop's up and running, obviously, you know, you're carefully looking at growth and visual symptoms and growth and root development if it's phosphorus, for example. And if you're seeing all them positive, but then at a certain point you might go, all right, before we get too far in, let's do a tissue test, especially if we're a bit concerned about root development or something, because that's the point where you can intervene relatively early. Because the longer you leave it, yeah. the more yield penalty you've probably got for the yeah. year. So. Well, that is what I've heard. Yeah. If you've got a tissue test and you're deficient in something, potentially you're a bit too late anyway. Sure, like. but that's also the difference between tissue and sap testing too. So you've got the two techniques there because sap testing is a little bit more real-time to tissue. Tissue's a lag time of a couple of weeks where sap's you know a little bit closer to now. But, yeah, so I guess you get in as early as you can appropriately. But before that point, you're still monitoring the crop. So if you just wait till then and go, oh, should we go into tissue tests? Well, you should have been monitoring the situation well before then. So you get to that point and you're going, all right, we're as early as we can be to get a tissue test. Yeah, get your shovel out. Yeah. 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 What other monitoring things can we do? Well, I think I've covered most of them for phosphorus. Yeah, but just as a general, like you want to be out in your crop all the time just doing your general bricks tests and and, and there's obviously some other meters that you can get. But I I find one of the best tests is is chewing on a bit of the crop, like pull it out and have a chew on it. And if it's sour, then I'd start looking at something... uh, start looking at other tests. Um, well, what would you do if it was sour? Is that where you'd use a follicular or a biological? Well, that's when I would do a BRICS test and, yeah. and then um, maybe a tissue test if I wasn't sure or I couldn't tell from the, the physical symptom, I'd send it off and get a tissue test. 
and, and get that sorted out as quickly as I could. So having your chews a bit like flying a drone over, so it kind of tells you it's not going well, but it doesn't tell you why. Yeah. So you've still got to go through that troubleshooting process. Yeah. So is it a soil health issue, soil constraint, which we should have addressed before the crop or before the season, and or is it a nutrient issue, phosphorus, um, and yeah, can we then fine tune? Because again, if everything's getting more expensive, we've really got to fine tune our inputs to really target them yeah. as best we can to sharpen the pencil because if things are going up 30 50 100 percent then we've just got to get sharper so. and, and more efficient find the most efficient way to put it into the plant and the most efficient time so mm. so dave in your experience when is the best time like you, you've got obviously you've got some growth periods where the plant sort of mm. so you've got like maybe tiller it might be a time that you could yeah, do something and then You've got a few tillers formed and a few good adult yeah. mature leaves going. And, and then maybe pre-flower or something like that um, are probably the two times that we target the most, I suppose, um, yeah. for foliars anyway. Yeah. yeah, and it depends. Obviously, we're talking a lot about cropping here, but you've got yeah. tree crops and horticulture and the principles are the same. But, yeah, it's just maybe the stage of growth might be different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is going to affect every industry, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I... I I see the risk being for cropping with low organic matter. You know, how are we going to manage this? And this, I think I'd really like to wrap this up with a bit of a case study. Let me throw out. If you were doing a recommendation and they would generally use 100 kilos of MAP, they might use another 100 kilos of urea, and if it's a really good year, they might put in another 100 kilos on. What would be an approach this year? Let's say there's no big soil deficiencies how would you suggest we put all of these bits and pieces together in, in that scenario for a traditional cropping system with low organic matter so that soil health isn't there yet to buffer it? Well, I guess the first <laughs> thing is you're probably going to rely on some solubility still. So the big first question is how low you can lower the solubility yeah. out of the program and not compromise yield too much. Because it'd probably be more profitable, especially if they're expensive solubles, but... It's how low you can go and still get reasonable production or some, you know, reasonable yield. So with a biological, I know with some of the biologicals I use, depending on the soil test, but definitely 20% less soluble fertiliser straight up in any given year. Uh, we can get away with that with not losing yield and, and up to 30% in the first year. And then we sort of back off and maybe go five or 10% less each year for a couple of years. And then we might look at some of these alternatives and we'll put in a foliar application instead of a urea application. We might, we might do a foliar of soil and an NPK trace element type thing together. And, and each year we might, we'll stretch that out. So um, yeah, but it's a time thing though. You just don't go, oh, I can't do that. So I can't, like, I don't do that. And that's when you run into trouble. I, I, that's what I've seen in the field is, oh, let's just halve our uh, fertiliser by 50%. Well, that you, can hurt. If you've got low carbon and poor soil function, you know, the challenge I have answering your case study, Nicola, is <laughs> we've got to think 10-year cycle. So yeah. we've got low carbon, poor soil structure or whatever, um, we might have at some reasonable phosphorus there, but we've got those two barriers to the system cycling it. So we've got to look at the whole paddock context and the, the agronomic and enterprise goals and go, all right, 
are you happy with bringing a pasture phase back or not? Or can you get animals on to graze cover crops? Yes or no. Um, we need to get more nitrogen up through legume content somehow. That's not going to happen overnight, but we can start that through having a crop sequence. So you've really got to get a 10-year window and go, what are your goals economically, agronomically? What's your enterprise options? And then we can really develop a, a multi-year program. And this is the big difference with regenerative agronomy. It's not, yes, there are short-term decisions, but you really got to think that. 10-year window if you want to transition a place over a paddock over you've got to you've got to put in place that longer term plan as well yeah yeah so we're coating seed potentially with the biological and with some other you know your mycorrhizal fungi or particular bacteria yep. you might lowering be... solubility getting ground cover yeah um, do we have to address other soil constraints like ph or Sodicity or compaction. This, this case you know, study was yeah. there was no deficiencies. No <laughs> I didn't want to make yeah, it too right. complicated. Yeah. No soil constraints. Yeah. yeah. Well, that sounds too good to be true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you can see where I guess where we're going here is that it's a multitude of things you've got to do in the right mix. Uh, but you're always thinking long term and yep. um, you're working with biology, soil constraints, as well as the phosphorus. And part of it will be lowering the solubility. But how far you can, how low you can go is the big question. Yeah, and we might find that that some people are very surprised, and and this is what happened in two thousand and eight. People changed, and they probably didn't change straight back again. Um, so it it's going to be a change in the whole industry, and some people will will go back to their traditional farming, but some people are going to keep going along this pathway. People might have residual pea that they can rely on this year, hoping next year it's gonna, it's all going to work out, but then what's going to happen the year after next? So in that 10-year plan, something has to change and, and these are the pieces of the puzzle that we're putting it all together with. Yeah, so I've got a friend of mine, he, it would be his 10th year this year and it cost him $12 to grow his crop per hectare. That was his input costs besides the seed and the fuel costs and things like that. So we broke the penetrometer on the surface of the soil three days after it had been irrigated. That's how hard his soil was. And it's just been amazing to watch that transformation. And he's just a happy camper now, like a happy fella. Happy <laughs> camper is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, hasn't used any nitrogen for six years Hasn't put out any synthetic phosphorus for, well, he put out, not last year, the year before, he put out 25 kgs of single super. And this year we put on a calcium spray because it was a bit low on calcium. We probably could have got away without it, but we decided that we wanted to, to do it and it was $12.50, I think, was the cost. And you're saying this is a 10-year transition? Yeah. 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 And that's obviously in particular rainfall, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's an irriga irrigated area, yeah. so that yeah. was one of the challenges yeah. that we had. That's why it was so compacted because you was watering all the time and growing lucerne and the soil was really tight. So there's a few – he doesn't grow lucerne anymore. He grows other stuff and, and um, yeah, he's, there's always a legume and a cereal together and there's so many different strategies that we can look at. He doesn't have a – fantastic disc seeder or modern equipment, any of those sorts of things. Um, but we've just been persistent and just kept working through it. So 
And that's the other thing you have to think about is what sort of equipment do I have and, and what are my capabilities? So there's so many things to take into place. But once again, I think we go back to it's all about getting the biology, that microbiome going like there's worms in these paddocks now where there was definitely no worms before. So you couldn't even put a shovel into the ground. So, At, at a certain point, sorry, Nicola, at a certain point, agronomy has to come into the 21st century. And by that, I mean we have to get have an ecological approach. At a certain point, it's going to have to happen. Now, whether you're forced by the price of inputs or availability of inputs, at a certain point, we have to work more with the ecosystem in the paddock yeah. than just trying to bypass it. Because there's a certain point at which the paddock will collapse, and people have seen that in paddocks. And at that point, you you've gone too far. It's such an expensive fix, you know, to ten year fix back. I think yeah. you've just wrapped the podcast up with that, David. Um, and I'd say we all agree on that. So thanks, guys, very much. It's um, been great to chat through it all. And I, I do want to give Soil and Food a plug. Um, there's a course called Reboot Your Soil. David's saying, no, I'm too busy, but Reboot Your Soil. You might have to do it December next year. But it's a course that uh, will help you think through all of these things. And another plug for Luke at Regen Farming. He is an independent consultant, not aligned with anyone, although he is my brother. Um, he will help you with any soil constraints that you might have and, and any of those ameliorants and help you think through it all. So um, contact, they're both on the NutriSoil website as, as people that we work with, but both independent. And call NutriSoil as well for, for any sort of needs for your seed dressing or for a biological foliar fertiliser. So thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Please follow the Biological Farming Roundtable podcast. Share it with your friends and networks. I'm Nicola Maddick and I work at NutriSoil, a liquid biological fertiliser made from a big worm farm whose purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food.